The vibration of change, that magical place where life shifts from struggle to ease, from stagnation to forward movement, from old ways of being to new ways of becoming. Yes, it can seem rather elusive to get there, but when you are in it, you feel it down to your very core, and it can positively affect everything in your life, from your relationships to your health and well-being, from your career path to your abundance, from the quality of your inner connection to the fullness of your self-expression. Here on The Christine Uptrich Show, we explore ways to get into that vibration of change with experts in the fields of consciousness, psychology, spirituality, health, healing, and science. Are you ready to step into your vibration of change? Hello, everybody. Welcome. You might be listening live on 1150 AM KKNW in the Seattle area, transformationtalkradio.com, Facebook Live on my professional page, or after the fact on my YouTube channel or one of the dozens of podcasts it sends up. Whenever you're joining us from, from and wherever you're joining us from, we're grateful to have you here. And I think you're going to really enjoy our conversation because we're going to be looking at addiction in a different way. But before I get started, I want to say hello to Benny in the Seattle area, KKNW behind all those contraptions. Contraptions? Hi, Benny. <laughs> yes, Christine. yes, all about the electronic gadgetry. Hey, someone's got to do doing it. Thank you for doing what you do. Thank you very yeah. much. Appreciate it. And uh, who is it at Transformation Talk Radio today? We've got Jacob here. How's it going? Hi, Jacob. Good, Jacob. thanks. Good. Hey. Thanks for doing what you're doing. <laughs> thanks, Benny. Yeah, I don't know fine. what that was. but <laughs> That was just me so celebrating <laughs> Jacob's there. Oh, I, I, for some reason, I thought it was your twins in the background. But I okay. wish. That'd be a great show. <laughs> you know, um, before I get started, I just want to share with our, our viewers and listeners um, a little bit about my father. My father had a very dry sense of humor when he was alive, and sometimes when he would tell me a joke, you know, it's like I, I would have to think for a minute, is he really joking? And my father was one who didn't drink very often. He probably had one or two drinks per month at the most. And I'm not talking about like, oh, he'd drink one or two times, he'd drink a bunch. He'd like, you know, have one little tiny glass of liqueur, savoring it after a, a dinner or a glass of champagne with a celebration. So one day he said to me, you know, Christine, um, I never want to become an alcoholic. And I'm thinking that's sort of a strange thing to say. And, and he said, don't you want to know why? I'm like, why, Dad? And he said, because then I'd have to stop drinking. And so that my father, um, you know, just had that kind of sense of humor. And I don't mean any disrespect to anybody who has problems with alcohol. But integral to my father's joke was this concept that is this widely accepted norm that if you are addicted to something, you have to abstain, right? And our guest today has a very different perspective, and I'm so excited about our conversation. His name is... Adi Jaffe, uh, he's got his PhD, and he is a world-renowned expert on mental health, addiction, relationships, and shame. Uh, he was a UCLA lecturer in psychology department for the better part of a decade and was the executive director and co-founder of one of the most progressive mental health treatment facilities in our country. And then he started his own system, which is a personalized adaptive recovery system, which we're gonna talk about. He is passionate about the role of shame in destroying lives and aims to greatly reduce the stigma of mental health in this country. And he has used his own personal experience with addiction and, and other things to 
create a motivational approach to healing our lives, including addiction. I would like to welcome our guest today, Adiv Jaffe. Hi, Adiv. Hey, thank you so much for having me. You know, um, I really enjoyed your book, The Abstinence Myth, a new approach for overcoming addiction without shame, judgment, or rules. And I'm just going to show it's probably going to be backwards, isn't it? Anyway, I think that um, the people at Transformation Talk Radio can show the cover of the book. But this goes against the widely accepted belief that abstinence is not just the way, but it's, it's integral to any kind of healing from addiction. And you say otherwise. And before we get into the reasons why you say otherwise, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about your own journey with addiction. Sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, again, thank you for having me on. I know this can be a, this can end up being a difficult conversation for people because addiction is something that can bring about terrible destruction and consequences to the people who are involved in it. And you know, I take your uh, your dad's joke to heart because the funny thing is that even people who do struggle with alcohol have the exact same issue that he has, which is the reason they don't want to call themselves alcoholics. They don't want to stop drinking. And um, my struggle started out with alcohol in high school, um, but they didn't seem like struggles. It was, you know, I found out about alcohol at a sleepaway camp. I was always a really shy kid having a lot of internal anxiety. I just didn't know to call anxiety. Nobody talked about that kind of stuff with me when I was 14, 15, and 16 years old. But when I was 14 at the sleepaway camp, somebody had me a fifth of vodka, and I was very concerned. To some extent, there's still that voice in my head now. But back then, very concerned with fitting in and having people like me. And so somebody handed me a handle of vodka, and I didn't ask questions. I just drank a little bit of it to kind of show that I fit in. And it tasted terrible, right? I mean straight warm vodka is just nothing good there's nothing good about it except for the way i felt 15 20 minutes later this warm feeling came over me i could talk to girls and not be embarrassed i could talk to the guys and not wonder about whether they think i'm cool or not i just could kind of be myself and it actually seemed like the cure to the problem i had had of anxiety and social misfit um kind of associations and feelings that i'd had up until that point and like any good medicine, I started using it regularly because it fixed my disease, my problem. And so every weekend, I was now invited to parties where people drank. And every weekend I drank and it was great. And then a couple of years after that, I found weed. And uh, it happened in sort of a similar way. It was just now a girl that I liked that handed me a joint. And I said, well, I'm obviously going to smoke whatever the hell this is because um, I want her to like me. So I did and started smoking cannabis. And then by the time I got to college, which was about two years after that cannabis experience, first hit me, I was drinking and smoking all day, every day. Uh, I was that college kid. And that worked until I had a pretty bad breakup, got into some severe depression and started looking for more ways to fix the way I felt inside. That led me to harder drugs. Within two or three years of that, um, I was using meth daily and was also selling drugs in order to keep up with the amount of money that my drugs were requiring, which was, I mean, Three to four hundred dollars a day was about how much the amount of drugs that I was using. And, you know, multiply that out. That's a lot of money every year. And so I needed to have a job that supplied that for me and made me money. Um, and that's that's really where I ended up. I'm, as I'm sitting here in front of you now, I'm 44 years old. I was 21, 22 when I started selling. 
using meth every day, I was down to about 124, 123 pounds. I'm about 165 now. So about 40 pounds lighter. Um, and you know, nothing good was happening in terms of the direction of my life, but I didn't know it. Um, I didn't know it. People around me knew it far better than me. And a few times they said, Hey, why don't we'll take you in? You can stop using, you can stop selling. I didn't see it. Um, there were things I wanted to fix, but quitting were, were not the way to do that. The only thing that changed my mind and allowed me to get into treatment was I got arrested and it was a pretty bad arrest, a SWAT team arrest at eight o'clock in the morning on a Saturday in my house. But, you know, the whole thing with the guns to the head and uh, 12 cops in my bedroom screaming at me at the top of their lungs. And my lawyer said something really simple. He said, hey, I mean, I had a, I had a meth pipe next to my bed. I had a gun on the other side of the bed. It was, it was a nightmare. And my lawyer said, if you want to not spend the next 15 years of your life in prison, you got to go to rehab. And so the only reason I chose rehab was because my world was about to completely crumble. Um, and, and that's where drug addiction led me. And we can talk more about my recovery story, but what it showed me more than anything when I did find my way to the other side is that it's a travesty that so many people, 90% of people with addiction issues do not get professional help. And the reason I wrote my book, the reason I do the work that I do is I want to start blaming them less and figuring out ways to help them more. And I think that's our way out of this mess. Yeah. And, and that blame, I mean, I, I understand on some level when, um, People with addiction are affecting their their loved ones, families, friends, um, you know, co-workers. And there's this judgment, like if they stopped this addiction, then that behavior would go away and therefore things would be back to normal or would have some sense of normalcy. But you say that's that's not the approach that fixes things. Why is yeah. that? Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of things. First of all, if it worked, I'd say, let's keep going. But the problem is that approach doesn't work and it hasn't worked for a hundred years. And you can keep banging your head against the wall. There's actually, ironically, in AA, there's a saying uh, stolen from potentially Albert Einstein. It depends on who you ask in terms of the initial um, source of the quote. But the quote is, uh, the definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over and expecting different results. We've all heard this quote. Well, the same thing is true for the system for recovery that we've been using for 100 years, right? Single-digit success rates, low double-digit access rates, and there is nothing else, there's no other medical condition for whom 90% of people with the problem don't get professional help for. It doesn't exist. In depression, something like 70 to 60% of people get professional help. When you get into physical issues like diabetes and cancer, it's 80 and 90% of people get at least one course of treatment. In addiction, even for the more severe cases, 90% of people don't get help. And then out of the 10% of people who do get help, the vast majority don't succeed. And so the question for me was simple. I started out, so I, by the way, I was sober in AA for three years, went to rehab, failed out of one rehab for using, went to another rehab, got myself straight there. And then uh, when I got out of jail, I served a year in jail. When I got out of jail, I was still sober. And I was going to meetings, but then I went back to school. I couldn't get a job. I went back to school. And when I was getting my master's and then PhD in psychology, I was learning about completely different ways to address addiction and mental health than what I was seeing in rehab and in AA. And I said, how bizarre is it that, you know, for tens of thousands of dollars a month, 
what I got in treatment had nothing to do with psychology at all. It had to do with this faith-based, and again, nothing against faith, but it had to do with a faith-based Christian, essentially, organization. And that was the only option I was even presented with. And I slowly started saying, there's got to be another way to do this. I'm not even hearing about the 12 steps in the psychology literature and, and work. So where, why is there such a gap? And I essentially decided to take on my own experiment and leave them behind and see if I can cobble together something for myself. I'm now here uh, about 17, 18 years later, and I'll tell you it's, it's worked relatively well for me. And what has that meant in my life? Uh, it's primarily meant I do my own process of um, self-discovery and work on a regular basis. It, it's not, I'm not going to tell people that, you know, it's still work. Um, what do I mean by that? I mean, it's not as if I just decided I want to overcome my issues and I get to sit on the sidelines. It's ongoing work. It can just look very, very different. And in my life, I'm not sober anymore. Uh, I'm now what you would consider a social or regular normal drinker um, uh-huh. and have been for 15 years. But the work, what I realized is the work is on those internal issues that made me want to drink and smoke and use drugs when I was 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. What happened was I never really developed coping strategies to deal with those things when I was young. And so I had to do it at a later time. And the entire so point I make in the book go ahead, is, finish. is the entire point I make in the book is about that. Alcohol, drugs, porn, food, sex, they're not actually your issue. They're the ill fit fix medication you found for your underlying issues. What we have to do is we have to go back to the source, correct the existing issues that were there from the beginning so that alcohol, drugs, et cetera, are not a necessary medication for you anymore. And then you can choose what you want to do with those. So in other words, you're basically like so many of the approaches is dealing with the symptoms and not the underlying cause. It's kind of like um, if you've got some sort of chronic disease, physical disease, and you're taking pharmaceutical drugs to suppress the symptoms, you're not healing the disease. And so you're saying the same thing is true with addiction, that you need to deal with the underlying cause. And then the symptoms um, are no longer, you know, appearing. 100%. And look, I always always, um, think of physical analogies for these because physical manifestations of the conditions are much easier for us to understand than mental because we don't see what happens in the brain. It's just this black box. Um, but when you get a heart attack, you have chest pain, right? But if somebody would suggest that the way to fix heart attacks is by fixing chest pain, we'd think they're crazy. Right. Cause the source is not the pain in the chest. That's the symptom that there's something wrong with your heart. You have to go fix what's wrong with the heart in order to get at this diabetes results in people fainting, having brain fog, right? Um, If you go fix the brain fog, you fix nothing about the underlying diabetic condition. How do you go fix that? Insulin, other medications, dietary changes, you know, exercise changes, things of that nature. Why? Because those fixes address the underlying root cause. In addiction, you said this from the beginning with your dad's joke, here's the issue. We pretend that if somebody who's been heavily traumatized, let's say as a child, stops drinking, the trauma somehow is relieved. It's not. If somebody has deep-seated social anxiety and we take away the alcohol, all they get is more anxious. And what I tell my clients, and the reason a lot of people come to me is it actually gets you caught in this impossible cycle, which is 
you try your damnedest to stop drinking and then your life gets harder and you hold on like like a banshee like you're just holding on trying to make it through but nothing's made better and eventually i won't say it here because we're on public uh stations and whatnot but essentially you say f it um Mm -hmm. i can't do this anymore this is too much and you take a drink and everybody then uses the fact that you took a drink as proof that you're an alcoholic because alcoholics can't stop drinking and you you use things like rationalizations and they look at that as excuses so i say forget the drinking we talk about it a little bit at ignited but forget the drinking Mm -hmm. what's bothering you right now let's go fix that yeah and i think about um with this concept of abstinence like you've got somebody who is you know working really hard and not dealing with the underlying cause and then they take a drink there's all this self-judgment instead of self-acceptance about how they're feeling which completely circumvents dealing with the underlying cause i have a perfect example of this so at ignited but so we we're not against abstinence it's just we don't require abstinence to come and do the work so a good 40 to 50 percent of people who i work with actually do end up abstaining they just get there through a path oftentimes and it's not necessarily as direct as some people would like for it to be um one example that i have that i love using is an example of a client of ours who was able to achieve a 90 percent reduction in her drinking 90 percent she was drinking an average of i believe it was 13 bottles of wine or so a week when she joined us which is a lot it's about a bottle and a half almost two bottles every single day um and by the time she had been with us for about three months she was drinking three to six glasses of wine a week. Went from 13 bottles to about a bottle and a half, right? That's over a 90% reduction. It's about a 93, 95% reduction. She went to her therapist and um, was reporting on this gleefully, right? She was happy about it. And he said, yeah, I'm still worried that you're drinking though. And I thought to myself, when we said that she was in one of the groups when she shared this, I thought to myself, how terrible is it that you can find your underlying reasons, fix the drive to drink, lower your drinking by 95%, and still be judged as a failure because you you didn't end up in perfection, which, by the way, is a goal somebody else wanted for you and not necessarily one you wanted for yourself. There's no other condition where this is true. Right. Right. Um, and so my entire and goal with Ignite. I think about the the. No, go ahead. No, just let's get back to the perfection piece because that seems rather key. Like, if people are avoiding dealing with their issues, they already feel imperfect, and so if they are getting judged from the outside or judging themselves because, you know, they're not completely abstaining, even if if they're in great shape and functioning better. That creates more of that self-judgment, which is going to, you know, it seems to me it would just sort of increase that that vicious cycle. Exactly, exactly. And if what we're trying to do is help people, I think we should celebrate any movement towards a positive end goal. Any, and I mean any movement, right? If you drink 13 glasses of wine a day and I can get you to 12, that's better. And then if I can get you to 11 and 10, they're all improvements and we should celebrate those things because we do in almost all other areas of life, right? In almost anything else, let's say you start running, 
I don't expect you to go run a marathon the next day. Right. But the first time you can run a 5K after you were never able to run before and you run 3.1, 3.2 miles, that's cause for celebration. You move up and you can run more or in shorter time, that's cause for celebration. Why? Because you're improving. And I want to make a point. Abstinence is really safe. I'm, again, I have nothing against abstinence. But we see the statistics. Single digit percentage people actually get to full abstinence for the rest of their lives, given the current mm -hmm. system. So if you have something, and I use this analogy in the book, so I'll use it here too. If you have something that is not working for about 95 to 99% of people who try it, maybe it's time to stop blaming the people it's not working for and see that there might be something in the system. And the analogy that I like to use is, imagine somebody opens up a restaurant and they spend months planning the menu and planning the decor and, and you know creating the opening kind of hoopla around it. And then they open it up and a bunch of people show up the first day and then nobody ever comes back. What we're doing in addiction treatment is like looking at that restaurant and saying, what's wrong with people? Why don't they want my really, really good, really amazing food? Instead of saying, what's wrong with my restaurant that people aren't coming back? And yeah. we have to stop it because unlike restaurants where people have a lot of other options, the reality is about 85 to 90% of the addiction treatment field is driven by one method. And that is the 12 step and, um, method of, of recovery. And people are dying and more people are dying every year. And we just have to face the music and say, whatever we're doing right now might feel really good to us. And we may want to tell people you have to quit, but it's just not working and more people are dying. We have to find another way. So I'm wondering over the last year and a half with lockdowns and restrictions and job losses and um, financial losses, what's happened with addiction? Do you have any numbers about that? still early and i think we're not even seeing anywhere near the impact of it but the numbers are not good uh in the first few months three to six months of covid hitting full steam when the lockdown was at its worst alcohol sales were doubling and tripling in different areas of the country um we know that the suicide rate was the highest we've ever seen it we know that uh overdose rates from addiction have been the highest we've ever had recorded and what we also know is most people haven't come out yet. So we haven't even seen the full weight and the consequence of what happened. And, and it drives home a point that you made, which was so important. I want people to take to heart. The shame around addiction is still huge. This is not, it's not one of those issues you go up to your friend and you say, hey, look, I'm really struggling with drinking. Can, I, can you help me out? Um, and Again, instead of blaming the people for whom that is a reality, I think we need to create solutions that reduce the shame because yeah. people can die from this condition. And so what I've liked, though, and I have to say this about the recovery world, is even the people who are incredibly, we've been doing this at Ignited for four years, <laughs> online help. A lot of people were really resistant, saying, no, no, you have to go in person. You got to be able to see them. You have to shake hands and you have to see them face to face. And then that became a, a non-reality. And so... A lot of things went online and there's a beautiful thing that happens online. You and I have video on right now because we're here for work and we, we do this and we're used to it. A lot of right. people don't like seeing themselves on video. A lot of people don't want to show their face when they're struggling because they're not doing well. Their house looks like hell. They look like hell. You know what you get to do in online meetings? You get to show up and turn your video camera off and turn your yeah. audio off and sit there and see it. You can't do that in reality. And so I think we actually 
made it more accessible for people to get help than ever before, which is something I'm going all in on. We, you know, when I ran a rehab, uh, as you mentioned in the intro, we were able to help 20, 30, 40 people a month. Uh-huh. We've got 200, 300, 400 people a month right now online because it's so easy to access it. They do it from their phone. They do it from their laptop. They do it from home. Yeah. They do it from their car. They can do it while at lunch at work. And so it's much, much easier to get the help, which I think is the one positive development out of this. Mm, yeah. And I'm going to want to hear more about uh, your approach because you've got various steps and and um, it's fascinating and clearly it's helping many, but we're going to take a quick break. Stay tuned for more with the G. Jaffe. I'm Peggy Snow with another Stellar Reflections Minute. Presence, or what we think of as being fully in the moment, is a key element in the process of healing work. As a practitioner facilitating a session, genuine presence takes us out of our heads where we tend to decide what is and maybe what should be for the client and moves us into direct experience where we're available to witness the person in their wholeness. In this receptive realm, our senses are heightened and expanded, allowing us to perceive what's seeking to unfold and to interact in the moment. There's something profoundly powerful that happens when healing is approached in this simple, pure way. Balance can be restored and healing can take place on multiple levels. If you'd like more information about the services we offer at Stellar Reflections, visit us at StellarReflections.com or call 425-999-9836. That's 425-999-9836. The vibration of change, that magical place where life shifts from struggle to ease, from stagnation to forward movement, from old ways of being to new ways of becoming. If you're like I am, it can be rather elusive to get there, but when you are in it, you feel it down to your very core, don't you? And it can positively affect everything in your life, from your relationships to your health and well-being, from your career path to your abundance, from the quality of that inner connection to the fullness of your self-expression. On The Christine Upchurch Show, we explore ways to get into that vibration of change with experts in the fields of consciousness, psychology, spirituality, health, healing, and science. Join me, Christine Upchurch, every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on KKNW AM 1150 and Transformation Talk Radio and learn new ways to step into your vibration of change. Welcome back to the Christine Upchurch Show here on KKNW AM 1150 in the Seattle area, Transformation Talk Radio around the world. I'm having a wonderful conversation today with Dr. Adi Jaffe, and he has written a book called The Abstinence Myth. A new approach for overcoming addiction without shame, judgment, or rules. Now, Dee, you have that S word in your subtitle, shame. How does shame play into addiction? Well, you know, as I mentioned, I think shame is a in the starting point of addiction, right? It's a huge part of why people even struggle with addiction in the first place. I felt shame or lack of um, fit, very um, uncomfortable around other people, whether it had to do with how cool I was or what I looked like. I mean, in my head, it was just this mess of a shame spiral, to be perfectly honest. And um, I wanted to solve it. Shame is a very basic emotion. Uh, If you track it back to our days living in small tribes, shame was one of those emotions that kept you in line. Um, 
when you weren't acting. So by definition, shame is when our internal concept of who we are doesn't fit with what we believe other people want us to be. Okay. Okay. So think about sexual orientation, think about race, think about, um, you know, um, disabilities, anything like that, right? I feel like I'm a certain kind of a person and I know that other people want me to be different. And that gap is shame. And we don't want to feel shame. And the reason is if you go back to old times, right? Small tribes, think 12, 15, 20, 50 people. If you didn't fit in, your odds of survival went down. Like it was a real life or death kind of situation. You would get ostracized. They would, you don't fit into our model. Go out there. We don't want to support you anymore. You could die on your own. And we still have that fear. Shame is one of those basic emotions. You will do anything to avoid. Um, We know it comes out in aggression and violence for people. A lot of times the reason people feel violent and aggressive towards others is because of internalized shame that they then try to project onto somebody else, right? Homophobia, things of that nature. Right. Um, And I I know that um, psychologists have done experiments looking at how uh, uh, having a a sense of ostracism affects us, affects our brains. And and basically it triggers the same part of the brain as physical pain. So it's it's like it's I think it's in our DNA because of, of, you know, if we got ejected, banished from the tribe, we wouldn't survive. But it, it is something that has this physiological effect on us. 100%. Uh, Matthew Lieberman and Naomi Eisenberg, actually, uh, from UCLA, who were, she was a graduate student and then a professor um, while I was there as well, were some of the people who've done that research in um, social neurobi- uh, neuropsychology. And yeah. you're exactly right. It feels like severe physical pain. Right. When somebody handed me that bottle of vodka and I was 14 years old, the choice I was making was between essentially feeling threatened and ostracized and as if my my existence within that group was threatened or I was going to take that drink. And so it, it becomes almost a non-choice. And that's what that's the source of peer pressure a lot, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So what we do at Ignited is we try to eliminate any opportunity for shame to creep up. That means whatever somebody's goals are, whatever somebody's past is, whatever somebody's defined current level of effort is, we try to accept everybody is doing their best at all times. And and when I say that to people a lot, look, you, it may not have ended you where you wanted to go, but you were making what you thought were the best choices at all times. You can just change those choices now, right? You can get back to the drawing board and fix and correct those choices. But the goal is always to become the best version of yourself. And by best, I don't mean my version of best. I mean, whatever is most true and honest for you. And that's a thing a lot of people haven't heard before. Because again, if you talk to traditional recovery people, they have a model of what you're supposed to become. And again, if that model fits what I think I want to become, no shame. But if it doesn't, I'm essentially making their shame worse, which is creating a worse addiction for them. And so that's where shame comes in there. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit more about your program. Sure. Um, so, you know, it's funny. We say uh, without rules. And where I, what I'm talking about that is really we run on principles more than anything else. And in the principles, we have three basic principles that ignite. And they are honest exploration, radical acceptance, and individualized transformation. Um, exploration, acceptance, and transformation. And... The way I talk about it is like this. We actually even have a little card that shows this in a stoplight fashion. And the reason is this. If you're uncomfortable, you're feeling something you don't want to be feeling, you're having a a negative reaction to something that's happening right now, 
stop, don't pass go, and don't try to change it yet. The first part is to explore why is this happening to me? Why am I feeling uncomfortable right now? What thoughts, what external influences, what past experiences are being brought back up that are making right now feel uncomfortable? Exploration is deeply important for the work that we do. Because if you don't understand why you're having a reaction, any correction, any fix you try to apply may be correcting the wrong thing and may actually even be damaging. It gets back to imagine if you have, a, if you have hypertension and you're likely to get a heart attack and then you have a heart attack and you mistake it for just chest pain. You take a pain reliever, the chest pain goes away, nothing helped the hypertension. You're actually putting yourself at more risk for a future heart attack. Right. You go checked out and have an electrocardiogram and they say your heart is having an issue. Forget fixing the chest pain. We need to fix your heart. We're fixing the underlying issue. You have to explore to understand what's going on. So exploration is number one. A lot of people, when they have discomfort, they try to fix it. Again, what I tried to do when I was 14 years old with that drink. Mm -hmm. Then once a lot of people understand what is wrong, again, the first place they go is trying to fix it. I think that forgets to address the shame component, what happens in addiction and mental health quite a bit. So our second principle is acceptance. You may not have ended up where you want to. You may have now explored and understood the reason for that, but you have to accept your reality, your current state mm -hmm. as truthful and honest. And again, the end point of everything that's happened to you up until this point, if you try to escape that fact, what you're trying to essentially say is there are parts of me that I don't like that I, that I need to write off. Mm -hmm. You know, we're all whole people. I'm a whole person. There are things I've done that I don't like, but they are part of my history. I'm sure you have the same right. in your life. Absolutely. Acceptance is a massive part of what we do. That's where we do the shame work. That's a community effort. So other people showing you that you are accepted. And then it's an internal effort of being able to say to you, look yourself in the mirror and say, you know what? I may not be where I want to end up being, but I know I have it within me to get there. I know I can change. I've done my best to this point and I will keep doing better. That's where acceptance comes in. And finally. So, uh, so let's, let me just um, say something here that, you know, you said the T word truth. And it, it seems to me, I've, I've been focusing a lot on belief systems over the last mm. few years, because I think that we create this construct and, and part of it is societal, part of it's familial, um, but there are aspects of our beliefs that we create in order to avoid the truth. Sure. So how do we see the truth within the context of a structure, the belief systems that really aren't true mm, that's so that's such a great thing and by the way the first two modules so essentially about a fifth of my program is about internalized beliefs um mm. including by the way the once an addict always an addict belief the right there are a lot of beliefs that we can have that that can have massive negative impact because there is a library full of research in psychology showing that your beliefs make it substantially more likely that you will live through the experience you believe to be true let's mm. repeat that again the way you see the world will change the world in which you live and will create an experience that is more in line with what you expect to happen than necessarily what is available to you. Um, so, D, you're not talking about like woo-woo, the, the, this concept of energetics. You're talking about scientific research. Oh, very basic. I'll, I'll go through a couple of studies that are mind-blowing when people hear them, and, uh, and we have enough time here, so I'll review them. One of the studies that... Um, I loved, and I talk about it in my TED talk, um, was a study done in an elementary school in Northern California. 
And the study was simple. It was a, a researcher who went to the school at the beginning of the school year. Uh, he knew the principal. And so he was able to get in at the, you know, the beginning of the year when students have those uh, standardized tests. And he went at the beginning of the year when standardized testing was happening and was able to insert his own test. And, um, and then the, essentially the point of the test was to find out which of the students, remember this is elementary school, right? This is second, third, fourth, fifth grade students. Right. They were trying to see which of the students were primed for intelligence growth. They called them bloomers. That was the point of the test. Look, in school, you don't know who to give attention to. You don't know who's brighter than another. And the idea that there could be a test that would identify smart students or students that are ready to become smart um, uh -huh. versus ones that are kind of a little slow right now seemed like a good idea. This is the 70s. Um, they put in the test and then they went to the teachers and they were right. The test identified about 20% of students who are what they were calling ready for blooming. Um, then they went to the teachers and they said, look, this is still experimental. We don't want to do anything with this, but we inserted this test called the Harvard test of inflected acquisitions into the assessments. And we identified 20% of your students who are primed for growth this year. We don't have final data on this. So what we want you to do is just watch these students throughout the year. Don't tell their parents, don't tell the students themselves because the data is not out. At the end of the year, before the next year's um, test came out, they came back in and assessed the students again. And they found out that they were right. On average, the students they identified as bloomers had about a seven IQ point growth higher than the rest of the student population. For people who don't know why seven might be an important thing, that's about a half a standard deviation. Genius is two standard deviations away from average. So this like these students got a quarter of the way to genius smarter in one school year compared to the schoolmates, which is incredible, right? They essentially developed a test that can tell you when somebody is going to get smarter in school. Okay. The whole thing was a farce. It was made up. There was no test called the Harvard test of inflected acquisition. They simply picked 20% of the students at random, went to their teachers and said, these students are smarter. And lo and behold, those students got smarter that year. What does that tell us? And there are a lot of other experiments I can go through, but I don't need to go through it in depth, you can look at it on my TED talk and a lot of other data. It works for negative stereotypes and it works for positive stereotypes. When you believe something about somebody else, it makes it more likely that you will see their behavior as in line with your beliefs. And importantly, that they will act in ways that reinforce your belief about them. That's now, amazing. now pause for a second and think about the fact that we think once an addict, always an addict. We think addicts are liars. They're unmotivated. They will never get better. They will lie to get anything. They don't care about anybody else. You can't trust them. If that's the way you see people who struggle with drugs and alcohol, and we know from research that the way you see people affects how they behave and how you see them, we end up getting caught between a rock and a hard place, which is we think we're trying to help these people, but we're not. We're pigeoning them we're pigeonholing them into a, a specific way of behaving. They see that they react appropriately and we get stuck in that cycle over and over. Yeah. That's, that's a really powerful example. Um, and I remember a family member had the same last name as um, somebody else in his class when he was in fourth or fifth grade and one of them apparently had done really badly on um, a, like a math, like 
tests or, you know, one of these standardized tests in the math area. And so in math, like the teacher had gotten the two people mixed up. And so she kept being really harsh in her grading of the one who was supposedly bad in math, but she'd gotten them switched around. And to this day, and he's in his 60s now, he has great fear of not being good at math just wow. because this this teacher had this expectation that was messed up um and i suspect that the other 40, one that she she brings probably did better i'm sorry what you're talking about 40 50 years later like that's the impact yeah. of this stuff right and by right. the way just so it's clear to everybody because we we're talking about school and you gave a school example too this is true for sports this is true for love life this is true for your selection of wine or what what sort of flavors you like i mean the amount of impact this has to do there was an experiment where they took white students and black students and they gave them a golf task and in one situation they presented the task as a test of innate athletic ability uh -huh. and in the other condition they set it up as a test of innate athletic intelligence but what are the stereotypes of black and white students white students are smart quote unquote black uh -huh. students are better athletes innately and so the black students performed better in the task, the exact same test, when it was made to look like innate athletic ability, and the white students did better when it was a test of athletic intelligence. Exact Amazing. same test. The only difference is how you present it. Now, I want everybody to think about the things we do to the people around us all the time. We put them in boxes constantly. And what I'm telling you is the box you put them in will make them more likely to stay stuck in that box. So what does F shame mean? And what do we do at Ignite? We say to them, look, I'm an ex-meth addict, right? Uh -huh. I've been to jail. I was a nine-time convicted felon. My record is, is expunged since. But, and now I have a PhD and a business and a family of, of three kids and a beautiful wife. And I, and I live an amazing life. And part of what I'm trying to show people is anything is possible. Do not believe for a moment that because you struggle with meth or heroin or pills or porn right now, that has said anything about where your life is going to be two, three, five, 10, 15 years from now. It just doesn't. Mm -hmm. But the story we tell people over and over is once an addict, always an addict. So you're always going to be struggling with this thing and it's always going to be there. And that lesson alone, by the way, even if it's true, which it's not, but even if that lesson were true, it keeps them stuck in their addiction longer than they need to be. Yeah. And I think about how you know, if addiction is a symptom of something that is going on, then it can be a gift in disguise. Um, it's kind of like that, that the chest pain, if you pay attention that, oh, there, there's something abnormal going on, I need to go find out what the underlying cause is, that you can prevent something really horrific and become healthier. And so, you know, the the, the symptom of addiction says that there's something internally that's not right that needs to get 100%. explored, which is, of course, your, your first part. 100%. And I think, I think that's a good insight. The, the thing you just shared right now is a good insight, period, right? I had social anxiety when I was young. Uh -huh. Had I known what to do about it, had I had conversations with other people, that was an opportunity. Why do I feel uncomfortable around other people? Either because I see myself as less than somehow or I have mistaken notions about what other people want from me. Right. That's what I needed yeah. to fix. Yeah. But I didn't because I found an easy solution for it. That oh. doesn't make the solution wrong. It worked. It worked for a very long time. 
it's just when it didn't work, I switched to something else and something else again and again and again. I think our brains, our bodies are always sending us signals. Again, that's why exploration is the first piece. If you are getting uncomfortable, don't try to fix it. Your body and your brain are sending you a signal that something needs to be changed and something needs to be addressed. If you go and fix it without understanding what it is, you're probably just fixing the discomfort and the symptom. Mm, yeah. Okay. So tell me more a little uh, about the, yeah. the next step in your program. Perfect. And the next step is important because it's not an easy one to carry out. And the first two steps you can kind of do on your own. Getting help is important. There are tests you can take and explorations that you can do with psychologists and therapists and coaches and hypnotists and things like that, that are really difficult to do on your own. But a lot of it you can do on your own. And most of the work that we do at Ignited with people is worksheets and they, they go through stories and they, they figure out what's wrong on their own. And then acceptance, you can do a lot of it on your own, but a lot of times you actually need a community because when you think badly of yourself, you need positive reflections of self in others oftentimes in order to be able to change your self-concept. But transformation is where things get a little complicated. And it's because this, all transformation really says, so explore, accept, transform. I always, used, I always say to people, you have to eat to grow. And that's also true in mental health, right? Eat, explore, yeah. accept, and transform. Um, the thing about transformation is this. In order to transform, you have to learn things you don't know. So you use alcohol to deal with social anxiety. That's great. It worked up until now. If you want to do something else, you have to learn other ways of dealing with social anxiety in order to get out of needing alcohol for it. That requires tools. And those tools are things that you don't know, or at least you're not well practiced in. And that's where oftentimes the use of books and courses and, and professionals for the helpful resources to learn how to do something. And then the motivation to practice those is of key importance. But here's where I differ from almost everybody in addition to the moderation or non-abstinence part of my approach. I think it's silly to suggest that everybody even needs the same transformation to address their addiction issues because everybody has a slightly different story of what brought them to the addiction problem in the first place. So I equate this to a toolkit and everybody requires their own toolkit, right? And so the idea of transformation is, is this. I identify through exploration that I feel uncomfortable when this happens or because something that happened to me in the past or whenever I eat this or feel this or when I'm surrounded by a certain group of people. I've accepted it, but now I want to change it. Well, I need to first have guidance on what tools have been shown to change that in people. And oh. then I need to run my own experimentation, which is Essentially, you try taking on these methodologies and you see if they work for you. This is not all that different than trying on different diets or different exercise sure. forms, right? Um, some people love lifting weights. Other people can't stand lifting weights and they want to run or bike. Some mm -hmm. people love eating sushi. Otherwise, other, other people don't want to walk by a sushi restaurant because the smell of seafood disgusts them. Right. We take this for granted in everyday life, but the same exact thing is true in recovery. And so what happens then is you need to have a very flexible approach to transformation. What ends up being important for the last step is instead of being so minutely focused on the method, you need to get focused on what your goals are, where you're trying to get, what are you trying to feel like? And then you try different approaches and you see which one gets you close to it. And I try to take a very agnostic um, approach to this. I don't care what method works. I just care that it does the job, right? Um, I'm not personally invested in any technique. 
I, I, I love the fact that you're saying, what do you want to feel like? Because I think that oftentimes people will think in terms of um, like the, the behavior, like the I don't want to drink or, or I want to stay in this marriage, you know, and, and have it seem like a certain way to the yeah. external world or like they're, they're in, instead of thinking in terms of the behavior or the scenario, you're focusing on how do you want to feel? Why is that important? You know, it's a, it's a lie of marketing that told us that it's the external things that get us the joy and the happiness in the first place. Um, nobody wants a Bentley. They want the feel, feeling they have by sitting in a Bentley. Now, there could be a lot of different feelings. The feeling of envy and your friend's faces because you're driving a $300,000 car or the feeling of the leather uh, on your, you know, on your body because it's the best leather on the face of the planet or the fact that you have 700 horsepower and you're driving like a human tank, whatever it is that gets you off, whatever it is that gets you excited about the idea, that's why you want the car, right? The same is true for everything. I've, I've now been, I can say blessed in a way because it's given me this insight, but I've been blessed to work with some of the wealthiest individuals on the face of the planet over my last mm -hmm. decade. Mm -hmm. And one thing I learned for certain, well, two things I learned for sure. One thing I learned is you should never want celebrity. Whoever is listening right now and dreams that you want celebrity, I want you to understand celebrity is the biggest curse you could ever have. Celebrity is different than wealth and money, but celebrity is actually a curse for everybody I know who's gotten it. The next thing is money. You've all heard this before, but money is absolutely not necessary and not sufficient to achieve happiness. And I know this because having worked with people worth 10, 20 billion dollars who are miserable, I realize it's not the money that got them the joy. You can have money and be happy with yourself and life is great. You can have money and be unhappy with yourself and life is miserable. So what ends up happening is people who aren't sure how they want to feel, they start looking for things on the outside to fill that gap. And so you use some examples and I'll use them. They think if I can quit drinking, everything will be okay. Cause that's what they've been told over and over. If I have a certain amount of money in the bank, everything will be okay. If I own a big enough house or I have a pretty enough or smart enough or rich enough husband or wife, if I drive a certain car, if I live in a certain neighborhood, whatever, fill in, if I have a certain bag, fill in whatever the external sign is. Now in the world of social media, if I have a certain number of followers or if enough people like my picture, whatever, all of those are false. Every single one of them is false. And any other external measure of happiness that you can have will be false. Now you need to have... Um, a standard of living that doesn't cause you pain, right? Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You need to at least feel safe and fed and, and all that kind right. of stuff. That There's basic needs. But beyond that, everything else, what you're going after is an end feeling that you believe you will have if you achieve that goal. And what's important there, and this is where the transformation piece that we talk about at Ignite often comes up, is what I've actually noticed now having worked with thousands of people is the following. What you have to fall in love with is the process of goal achievement, not the end goal itself. Mm. Let me explain what I mean by that. There are things that you will have to do in your life if you want a Bentley. I'll just use simple examples that are easy for people to understand, right? There are things you will have to do in life. If you can find a process that will get you that Bentley in which you are happy pursuing the process, a job you enjoy, um, a marriage that drives you and motivates you to do to go and show up better for your sales job to get the money. 
I don't know, whatever process is for you. If you can find a process that does it, your way to the Bentley will become happier and more joyful. But mark my words, the joy you will feel at reaching the end point and buying the car will last a couple of weeks at most. And then what you will need to do again is set another goal and restart the process of reaching that goal. It is the journey to the goal that is the thing that provides the most happiness. And once I found that for myself and my clients, what I urge them to do is this. The concept of explore, accept, transform is iterative. You just keep going. Mm -hmm. At every single point, you're trying to figure out where's the next level I want to get to. You understand why you're not there. You accept your current station and you work to get there. Once you get there, Mm -hmm. your only job is to reset another goal. We've run out of time. What's your website? Um, the easiest website to find us at is ignited.com. Uh, I'm wearing it on my hat, igntd.com, uh, or my name, adjaffe.com. Those are the easiest places. Okay, great. Thank you. And, and of course, the book is entitled The Abstinence Myth. Um, love your insights. Uh, it feels like this is something really important for our world. So thank you for taking your your pain and your your successful journey out of it um, to share with the world thank you so much for having me on yeah and thanks for joining us here uh, look forward to talking to you again soon bye everybody thanks so much for tuning in today if you'd like to empower yourself to step further into your vibration of change please visit my website at christineupchurch.com where you can learn more about my insights upcoming events, and private sessions.